Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The following presentation is from Fight Back La Repose Socialiste's 2021 Congress, in which comrades met to discuss and vote on our analysis of the current political and economic situation in Canada. The accompanying document can be read on our website at marxist.ca. Alex Grant, editor of Fight Back, gives this talk on Canadian Perspectives 2021. Comrades, welcome to the Canadian Perspectives discussion for the 2021 Congress of Fight Back, Larry Post Socialist, the Canadian section of the IMT. It's fantastic to see hundreds of people here from coast to coast, from British Columbia to the Maritimes, from Quebec, Ontario, Alberta, visitors from United States and from Britain. The strength of this meeting is itself a symptom of the growing radicalization in society, that more and more workers and youth are looking for revolutionary answers. And people are demanding an explanation. And that's why the forces of Marxism have been growing internationally and in Canada. Now, why are we discussing Canadian perspectives? As far as I can tell, I, I don't think most people, most groups on the left discuss perspectives like we do. The NDP definitely doesn't discuss perspectives. The NDP just had its convention when it spent most of the time trying to discuss nothing, but it did charge people $150 to discuss nothing. We discuss perspectives because we want answers to why things are happening, what was and what is, and to use the Marxist method to understand what we expect to be. Now, it's not a crystal ball. You can't tell exactly what's going to happen, but you can clarify your ideas and determine general trends that help you help us understand uh, and develop our activity. Now, for example, if we expected a period of prolonged capitalist growth, that would lead us to different tactics than if uh, we believe there's a period of crisis and struggle. And as we heard in our previous World Perspectives discussion, we are in an epoch of world revolution. But Canada is not, you know, the developments in Canada aren't exactly the same as in every other country. Some countries are more advanced, some countries are slower to develop, but you can see that all countries are on a similar road. Now, the road has been a bumpy one. It appears that we're coming out of the third wave of the pandemic in Canada, hopefully, and how did we get to where we currently are? The people who entered the pandemic a year and a half ago are not the same people as they are today. The pandemic has been likened to a war. Well, in Canada, 25,000 people have died. And, and this affects mass psychology. There's the absolute crime of negligence in long-term care, where old folks in these institutions were literally left to die for the benefit of private profit. Not just COVID, but also starvation and lack of uh, water. You also seen the murderous conditions in manufacturing and warehousing. The, the so-called you know, heroes, the essential workers that you know, the governments and corporations called these people's heroes, but then cut down their wages and conditions and let them get 
infected. Yeah. Very often, the poorest sectors of society, people of color, women workers, that the pandemic revealed all of the weak spots in capitalist society, that, that they refused to do anything to help essential workers. They refused to give paid sick days until there was a mass movement. And even then, it's uh, not enough. And there's, there was an economic collapse associated with the pandemic that the, the government opened the books and just threw money at the problem. Massive deficits at every level. In 2020, the federal government had a $365 billion deficit. Its debt to GDP ratio shot up by 20%. This year, the debt to GDP is going to be $155 billion. So yes, the debt to GDP ratio is, has gone up. The aggregate debt to GDP, provincial and federal, has gone from 65% to 92%. Yeah. And much of this money has just been gifted to the corporations. Uh, when we first drafted the Canadian Perspectives document, uh, we sometimes called this stimulus. And, that, and that's the government propaganda that this is stimulus for the economy. But you know, we realized actually much of this money is not stimulus. It's just handouts to the corporations. You know, it, it is no strings attached, free money just being given by the government to the major corporations. No schools are being built, no roads are being repaired, no hospitals are being formed, just pure corporate welfare. Uh, but the debt goes up and up and up and up. The most extreme example of this corporate welfare was the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, over $100 billion. And, and many of the companies that got this gave significant executive bonuses. They gave dividends to their shareholders, all while, lay, while laying off workers. So large sectors of these companies didn't need any of this money. And then another large section were already dead, so-called zombie corporations. Actually, a sector of companies were in bankruptcy protection while they got the wage subsidy money. So, so it didn't save a single job, was merely just going to pay back bankers. And as soon, of course, as soon as these subsidies are cut off, then these companies will just die. So these handouts have led to, led to a massive polarization of wealth. Canada's 47 billionaires are now 78 billion dollars richer they did very well out of the pandemic while working class people suffered and died that you also saw the scandal of the hoarding of dead money that this is uh, uninvested money sitting in banks doing nothing like a dragon sitting on a mountain of gold well during the pandemic that mountain of gold went from one trillion dollars to 1.6 trillion dollars just remember that the next time they say they can't afford free education. The cost of free education in Canada is approximately $10 billion. Well, Canada's rich put away $600 billion that they didn't even know what to do with. See, the wealth exists in society, but the logic of capitalism hoards it with the 1%. And you're seeing what's been called a K-shaped recovery, that the rich are going up and the poor are going down. Levels of inequality are uh, the same as they were just before the Great Depression. The top 1% of 25% of all wealth, the same as 1929. But there's an important difference from 1929. During the Great Depression, the level of inequality actually went down. With the crash in the stock market, the, uh, the, the rich-poor divide meant that in the 1960s, 
the top 1% only had 10% of wealth. But now, instead of the rich-poor gap getting smaller in the crisis, it's actually getting bigger. And soon the top 1% will have 30% of wealth and more. So this creates a whole series of social contradictions that we've explained that the root of this is a crisis of overproduction. Before the pandemic, we explained that it just take, you know, one little thing to set off a crash. Well, it wasn't one little thing. It was a great big pandemic. But the, the fundamental contradictions have not been resolved. You know, in a crisis of overproduction, supply has got to come into balance with demand. You either have to increase consumption or decrease production. And they definitely haven't decreased production. In fact, with all the government handouts, the bankruptcy rate has gone down and, and there have been hundreds of thousands of people have lost their jobs. Overwhelmingly women workers in the service sector, low wage workers especially. And you've seen this uh, sort of, yes, what we call a case-shaped recovery. So women workers, racialized workers have been doing badly. But if you're the capitalist, you've been doing very well. And, but there's also been a, another sector of society that's done okay. And, and we struggle to find terminology for this uh, sector. Because it's, it's wrong to call it the middle class. Because some layers of the middle class have really suffered. And, and actually the term middle class is not scientific at all. It's, it doesn't really mean anything. But small businesses have really been ruined in the pandemic. But if you're a white collar professional well-paid and have been able to work at home during the pandemic, you've been able to save a bit of cash. So, so th these layers are, are technically uh, the, the upper layers of the working class or management. And, and, and normally they would go on holiday, go to restaurants, go to bars. Uh, typically they'd spend something like $10,000 a year on this and, and they haven't been able to spend that money. So as we come out of the pandemic, the, the capitalists are expecting this sort of preloaded stimulus and, and, and all their hopes are, are riding on, on this. Well, the reality is that this is a temporary phenomena and the money injected into the economy is purely fictitious. Uh, it's purely speculative. So, so this is not a sort of healthy basis for stable growth into the future. It's like, yes, there is no final crisis of capitalism that, you know, when we say that capitalism is an epoch in, in an epoch of crisis, that is a general statement. It doesn't mean there's going to be an economic slump every single year. But when you're talking about a genuine development of the productive forces, this is over a longer period. Like, some of the growth is purely on the base of printing money that they been, the Bank of Canada has been printing five billion dollars of quantitative easing every week. Actually, I recently saw a statistic that printing money is the was the largest source of government revenue in 2020. More than more than taxation, more than the revenue from crown corporations, just just imaginary money. And, and basic economic theory states that if you print money, that reduces the value of money because money is not value. Money is just the measurement of value. You know, you can't eat money. You can't wear money. You can't live in money. If, if, you, if the amount of value in society stays the same and you print more money, you're just reducing the value of the money. So, so, what, so one of the perplexing things is why hasn't there been massive inflation then? Because the way that you perceive the reduced value of money is increased pr prices. Well, in the pandemic, in the crisis, 
was a collapse in demand. So the uh, re reduced value of money couldn't express itself because people weren't willing to buy those commodities or able. But now as we come out of the pandemic and you've got this sort of preloaded stimulus, that now you've got the opportunity for inflation to kick in. And, and, and you've already seen this in several sectors. The, the money gifted to the corporations has led to a massive inflation in stock prices, and that increases the wealth of the rich. Canada has also got one of the biggest housing bubbles on the planet. The price of property has increased by 23% in the last year, again, increasing the wealth of the rich and totally speculative and fictitious. You've also seen inflation in food, which reduces the wealth of the poor. And, and this is a process we've explained in the perspectives document. And th this is the whole point of perspectives. As Trotsky said, it's the victory of foresight over astonishment that we can prepare our arguments and our analysis prior to events happening. And, and you're already seeing inflation just start to tick up. So in, in Can the latest statistics in Canada was 3.4% inflation. Typically, central banks try to aim for a 2% inflation. Actually, in the United States, I think inflation is now 4 or 5%. So uh, we're seeing that the, the growth uh, is, is on a sound but unsound basis. And, and, you know, you can have this mechanical view that... Slump means class struggle and boom means class peace. It doesn't necessarily work that way. Sometimes a slump can make the workers too scared to fight. And sometimes a small amount of growth can give the workers confidence to fight, especially if they're trying to recover what they lost in the previous period. So, so what could happen is with uh, inflation would fuel the class struggle as workers try to catch up with the higher cost of living. And, and as, as inflation kicks in, it's important that we have our arguments because the, what the right wing are going to do is blame inflation on high wages. The so-called high wages of the workers is what causes prices to go up. They're completely ignoring the fact that they've gifted hundreds of billions of dollars to the corporations in corporate welfare and, and gifted all of this money through quantitative easing. But, but let's get to some basic Marxist economics. Does increasing wages cause increasing prices? Think the value of a commodity is equal to its socially necessary labor time, necessary for its production. Now that can be that socially necessary labor time can be split into two parts: old labor, means of production, and new added labor by newly employed workers. Right. So it's constant capital on one side and newly added labor. Now that newly added labor is split into two parts. The wages of the workers, the variable capital, and whatever is left over, the surplus value. So let's say the, the, the worker adds in 10 hours labor, that say their wages are equal to five hours labor, and the, re the remainder is another five hours. See, if you reduce wages to four hours, that leaves six hours surplus value. If you reduce wages to four hours, that leaves six hours surplus labor. Yeah. If you increase wages to six hours, that leaves four hours surplus value. The total labor in the commodity does not change. See, wages go up, profits go down. Wages go down, profits go up. But the reality is, you know, the, the variable capital, the wages 
are the independent variable and the surplus value, the profits, are uh, the dependent variable that just change relative to wages. If, if they say that prices go up because wages go up, well, why don't prices go up when profits go up? Or why don't prices go up when CEO pay goes up? It, it is just the ideology of the class struggle. So we've got to get our uh, arguments nice and sharp because we're going to be using these a lot. Okay. So the gov governments, federal, provincial, municipal governments have been putting through big deficits. And, and, and previously they, uh, they tried instituting austerity. But we've seen that the, uh, uh, the theoreticians of global capitalism have decided that austerity is a bad idea, that they're, they're worried of a pitchfork rebellion, especially with this increased inequality and increased concentration of wealth in the 1%. So, so they've actually been avoiding austerity and just getting more and more deficits. They're trying to maintain the social equilibrium at the expense of the economic equilibrium. The recent federal budget had uh, very little austerity. And they say, oh, oh, don't worry, we had big deficits uh, in, in the Second World War, but we were fine. They were fine on the basis of 5 and 6% annual growth rates in the 50s and 60s. But there's absolutely no reason to expect that to happen in the future. In fact, the recent federal budget predicted a, an average 3% growth rate. Apart from an initial bounce back from the slump, that 3% is total fantasy. It's got no basis in reality. Actually, if, if you look at a graph of growth rates for the last 20 years, the, the average rate has been approximately one, one and a half percent, about the same as population growth. So, so they're hoping, OK, we'll have these deficits for now, but things will sort out in the long run. But they won't. And these debts will have to be paid back eventually. And the longer they put it off, the bigger the debt. And they say, oh, don't worry, interest rates are very low. Debt servicing is, is cheap. And that is true today. But let's remember, debt to GDP went from 65 to 92. Let's say it goes to 100, 110, 120. And then inflation starts kicking in. The only way to get hold, uh, get, get hold of inflation is increase interest rates. And that will increase debt servicing costs that will become the, gov the largest government department. Even eventually, somebody has to pay. And it's either the bosses or the workers. And we know that a boss's government is going to try and make the workers pay. So this question of who pays cannot be avoided and austerity is inevitable under capitalism. But they can try and put this off for a number of years, but not forever. And they don't control everything. That's the whole point of capitalism. Capitalism is a chaotic system. It's not a planned economy. Actually, I think in 2008, in, everybody was saying the Greek economy is just fine until it really, really wasn't. And, and actually one triggering factor could be the housing bubble. That could create a special Canadian crisis. But as I said, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know exactly how this is going to work out. All that we can say that the general tendency over the period is downwards. And the capitalists are trying to avoid austerity in the here and now and avoid the question of who pays. Because there's, there's been a, a couple of governments who've shown what happens when you try to attack the workers. Like the Jason Kenney United Conservatives in Alberta. In the middle of the pandemic, they were firing healthcare workers. And now Jason Kenney is the most hated premier in the country. And actually, Newfoundland appears to be doing a, uh, a far-right-wing experiment. The, the newly elected Liberal government is putting forward its so-called Great Reset. 
actually Newfoundland has the the worst debt to GDP ratio in Canada, over $65,000 per head. Aggregate debt to GDP is 105%. And, and in response, they're uh, proposing a 5% government cutbacks, 20% to some departments, 25% to healthcare, 30% to post-secondary education, a 275% increase in tuition fees, a wage freeze in the public sector, actually a reopening of all public sector contracts to put a gun to the head of the unions to institute a wage freeze. And if the unions refuse to cut their own heads off, then there will be legislation to enforce those contracts and all strikes will be illegal. You can see this is a recipe for extreme class war. And, and we... And we'll see what the action is of the Newfoundland working class. We, we saw what the action was of the Alberta working class. Wildcat walkouts and threats of a general strike and extreme unpopularity of the government. So uh, most other governments are afraid of taking this role of extreme austerity. So this leaves us with the question, how will the anger in society be expressed? See, see the federal government is doing what it can to avoid the class struggle. But the reality is, is that the, the struggle can burst out in any number of avenues. Uh, we've seen a number of lockouts and strikes in the recent period. You see Molson, Nestle, the Montreal dock workers, a, a whole series of other small and medium sized disputes. And, and, and this is just blatant class war by individual capitalists who are using the weakness and the fear of the workers during the pandemic to go on the offensive. So and with enough of these attacks, that has an effect on the consciousness of the workers. And in a modest way, our propaganda, our, our demands to stand up uh, has actually started to have an effect with a layer of workers. And the reason it has effect is not because of our strength. It's because trade union militancy against these attacks is the logical uh, conclusion. See, if there's not federal austerity, there could be provincial or municipal austerity lead to a large struggle. Or, or, or issues of, of justice against oppression. We've seen the, we've seen the amazing uh, explosion of the indigenous struggle in recent years, strongly linked to resource extraction and linked to the historical crimes of Canadian imperialism. So the, those injustices are not resolved and could burst out at any minute. Although there was an interesting thing in the recent federal budget. There was $18 billion for indigenous initiatives, which I think is like, uh, a tripling of previous funding. They didn't make it clear exactly where this money was going, but reading between the lines, it's, it looks like it's going to create a level, a layer of indigenous bourgeois in classic liberal fashion, you know, buy off the leaders of the movement. You know, oh, you don't like pipelines. Oh, here's an indigenous pipeline, you know, and, and oh, you support the indigenous. Well, here's an indigenous billionaire. So the idea is to uh, create a, an indigenous bourgeois to, to divide the community. Racism and police violence can be an important area of struggle. Students and youth could enter this, the sphere of struggle. Even international events, you saw amazing protests over Palestine. It, it just shows there is so much combustible material out there. You know, it's, it's a dry forest and it's just, you know, a single match or a single lightning strike. Actually, a, a good example of this was the recent struggle for paid sick days in Ontario. You saw an, ex an incredible explosion of anger. Actually, I think it was in the beginning of April, 
we published an article titled WTF Doug Ford. And you know, at the time, people well, should you really use that profanity? Well, two weeks later, everybody in the province said, what the fuck, Doug Ford? With the you know, exponential rise in the third wave, everybody calling for paid sick days and other measures against the pandemic. What did he announce? A police crackdown and shutting down children's playgrounds. There was an intense explosion of anger. And at the same time this was going on, there was a wave of work refusals, spontaneous work refusals by workers with no leadership from the unions, no leadership from the NDP. And in that moment, we took an initiative. We united with sections of the NDP left to form the Ontario Coalition Against Ford to encourage work refusals over pay sick days and, and a whole series of other reforms. It, it, it caught a mood. Uh, we had 400 people at that uh, meeting. The popularity of the government collapsed. A year ago, 80% of Ontarians said they supported the government in the pandemic. That number collapsed to 30%. Actually, that's a generalized phenomenon. In you know, the first wave, there was a huge you know, pandemic bump for sitting politicians, but now they've all collapsed in popularity with Kenny and Ford being the worst. Uh, but yeah, so we took that initiative and, and people asked us, well, where's this going? And, and the reality is you can't always know. On the one side, so we appealed to the NDP and the unions to uh, organize and support work refusals. And, and that would be the easiest way to make something happen. If, if any of the major unions had said, so like, no, we're not going in. Workers have a legal right to refuse unsafe work. And under this government, all work is unsafe. And we're not going back to work until you give us paid sick days and everything else that we need. So if, if any union leadership or the NDP leadership had encouraged that, it could have spread like wildfire. But of course, the, the workers' organizations are led by terrible bureaucrats. And you're not gonna overturn that just by a couple of weeks of uh, anger. But the other way the movement could have burst out would have been in the non-union workers. Could you imagine a spontaneous walkout amongst the Amazon workers where there was hundreds and hundreds of infections due to the negligence of the bosses. So, so, so this, this is a, a, how a revolutionary organization can intervene in a moment of mass anger, that we can either put the pressure on the workers' organizations, we can fight for leadership of the workers' organizations, a longer struggle, to give that militant lead at the vital moments, or we can help give confidence to uh, rank and file unorganized workers. It turned out that we weren't able to achieve any of these th three things in the short period of anger, which shows that we need to build and, uh, and, and spread the ideas of Marxism. But a whole layer of uh, militants have been educated by this struggle and can be won to the struggle to transform the workers' organizations. Because the biggest crisis in society is the crisis of working class leadership. And this crisis is not solved overnight, but in a, a period of radicalization, the workers' organizations end up reflecting that radicalization, but not directly, but by a series of progressive approximations that you know, more conservative leaders are shifted aside and leaders closer to the rank and file are, are promoted. And, and then in turn, those sort of new left leaders end up uh, being left behind by the movement and they get replaced by more radical leaders and eventually get replaced by Marxists. 
part of a revolutionary organization. Okay, turning to politics. Actually, one, one final statement on the where will radicalization occur? The reality is we don't know, but it could occur anywhere and we have to be prepared to turn to it uh, when it occurs. And, and, have we, and have we seen, have we, as we've seen, we're not gonna get much notice that this, the six days struggle blew up within a period of weeks. It, it got a partial victory with the, the three sick days, uh, totally insufficient, but that's way more that than would have been got without the struggle. Ironically, Doug Ford was forced to institute this reform before the BC NDP government. Just shows the bankruptcy of reformism in power. Okay, turning to politics. There's probably going to be an election later this year. The, the Liberals are doing everything in their power to uh, uh, trigger an election. And uh, actually, the, the only thing that's been stopping this has been the, the federal NDP leadership. The, the, the Liberals are trying to organise their own defeat on a confidence motion. And the NDP saying, no, 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 we have confidence in you. Now, the NDP have got more confidence in the Liberals than the Liberals have in themselves. See, th th this is not a recipe for increasing support of the NDP. It, and, and the NDP has shown complete bankruptcy in this crisis. But the wage subsidy that was the main corporate welfare vehicle was an NDP idea. And up until recently, they were bragging about that. Now they've realized there's a few problems and they say that, oh, some of, these, some of this money should be paid back. But they were the people demanding this a year ago. That, uh, you know, and sometimes they come up with good reforms, but then when you look at the small print, you realize there'll be, those reforms will be implemented in a decade. Like they said that the private long-term care that killed all those old people in the pandemic should be taken into public ownership. Yeah, very good. But then you read the small print and they said not until 2030. It's like, how many people have to die? Nationalize it today. Nationalize it yesterday. Can't wait till 2030. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, when he was asked about Palestine, responded by saying, I'm opposed to anti-Semitism. Utterly angering people. And, and in fact, they've mobilized this anti-Semitism slur against the left and Nikki Ashton. And initially sort of, Ashton and the left were very quiet and, and took the attacks. But, but thankfully, they did start fighting back a little bit and, uh, and pushed back these attacks. And, and they'd learned a little bit, at least a little bit from the Corbyn movement. And, uh, and you recently had the NDP convention, completely stage managed affair by the bureaucracy, that uh, you know, they, they limited debate on everything. But they were forced to have a couple of concessions that they were forced to, to vote on a resolution supporting Palestine that got 80% of the vote. Also, uh, the Singh put forward a reformist platform of, of a series of corporate taxes and tax, uh, taxes on the rich. And, and, and there's a sort of a, a verbiage of, you know, uh, against the wealth of the super rich. But again, if you look at the small print, you'll realize that these taxes at most a $30 billion, when uh, the deficit is $155 billion. Um, and you know the, the left is not dead, but the bureaucracy is still in control. And the bureaucracy stops left-wing or pro-Palestinian candidates running for the party. For example, the socialist uh, Jessa McLean got 33% of the, the vote for the party president. Which, which is probably a fair measurement of the balance of forces between left and right in the party. That 
the NDP bureaucracy has learned from the Corbyn movement. It's the same bureaucracy that's been in power for decades, but instead of the Blairites or Hillary Clinton, they, they know how to put on a left face. And the fact that the, the, the left is wishy-washy, it means the dividing line is not so sharp between the bureaucracy and the left. So, so the bureaucracy maintains control and, uh, and it means it, it's a lot more difficult for an insurgent movement like Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn. But the class nature of the party hasn't changed. It still has an organic link to the trade unions. And it's absolutely vital that we take a position opposed to pro-liberal strategic voting. And, and once we've said you know, that the unions shouldn't call for a vote for the liberals, then the logical follow-up question is, well, who should you vote for? That, uh, and if someone asked me that, I'd say, well, I'd, I'd vote for the NDP. Uh, but if you were going to abstain and you, and you can't see a reason to vote, I totally understand where you're coming from. So I, because they're not attractive to radicalized workers and youth, especially the people we're talking to. In our opinion, because of the uninspiring leadership of the NDP, probably the, the most important area for struggle is extra parliamentary. Workers' struggles, struggles against oppression. It, it appears that the, that the road is blocked within uh, parliamentary politics, at least in the short term. Of course, any mass struggle will inevitably have an expression, political expression at a certain point. But we don't know whether that would be the NDP or something different. But we put our emphasis on the extra, extra parliamentary struggle. Okay, uh, I'm running short on time, though. So I, I should highlight a few important provinces. Uh, so, so one interesting development is the fact that despite the COVID outbreak, the Quebec government is still very popular that uh, Legault has, uh, is, is, is a new formation, the CAC. So you've got a non-independentist uh, nationalism like Duplessis. And, and people are, were sick of the old parties, the Liberals and the Parti Québécois. And the CAC and Legault have been able to come up the middle. But they've also been assisted by the fact that Quebec Solidaire has moved to the right. Actually, during the first waves of the pandemic, QS was... Uh, wrapped up in the national unity rhetoric and gave Legault a free pass. One could argue that the Ontario NDP did better opposition to Doug Ford than Quebec Solidaire, the so-called anti-capitalist party, did to Legault. But eventually the logic of class struggle will dominate. Uh, the CAC will move to austerity and attack the working class. And that will allow the militant traditions of the Quebec working class to come through again. And QS could very well be a conduit despite its moderation, increasing moderation. Uh, in Alberta, that's a classic case of dialectics. The first will be last and the last will be first. So-called reactionary Alberta is, has the most heightened class struggle. And the, the Kenny government is stuck between two forces. On the one side, you've got the working class that wants action against the pandemic and no austerity. And on the other side, you've got the far right who hate Kenny for even the very limited actions on the pandemic. There's like a Covidiot caucus of the UCP of like 16 or 17 uh, MLAs. So, so Jason Kenny just can't win from both the left and the right. And it's an extreme example of polarization. I don't have time to develop these ideas. It'll come out in the discussion. 
But all of this crisis underlines the most important point, the need for revolutionary working class leadership and the need for nationalization, workers control and a socialist planned economy. There's a terrible cycle in society. The crisis makes the workers fight, but the bankruptcy of the leadership means that most of these movements will fail. But the crisis in society means that the capitalists will not consolidate their victory. You know, if they could defeat the workers and then develop the means of production, then uh, the capitalists could create a stable situation. But they can't develop the means of production. So after a period of defeat, the workers head back into struggle. And then they will tend to lose again because of bad leadership. But through all of these cycles, the workers learn lessons. They'll put forward better leaders. And we will intervene. Help bring out the revolutionary conclusions. Because under this situation of crisis, there is no capitalist solution except corporate welfare. When capitalism cannot provide profits, then the state guarantees those profits. This, this is the position the NDP and union bureaucracy have fallen into. They are the lead proponents of corporate welfare. See, the unions were supporting the multi-billion dollar bailout of Air Canada, whereas you could easily nationalize Air Canada for that amount. So as, as this process continues, the movement will radicalize and eventually lead to its logical conclusion, revolutionary Marxism. Now, this is not a straight line. It's not a single march to victory. The terrain of struggle will change. There will be periods of defeats and demoralization, but the general line will be capitalist decline and re a revolutionary epoch. And our task, comrades, is to build an organization of thousands. We, we already went from a handful to hundreds. Now we need to go to thousands where we can start playing a role in these struggles. We can start changing the objective situation and not just being, and not just being subjective observers. Instead of always losing, the workers will learn how to win. The role is open, comrades, but we must develop the cadres. Everybody present here must develop themselves as educated Marxists. In the right moment, a single revolutionary in a workplace can radicalize the entire situation. But only if you know how to turn those revolutionary ideas into a language understood by the rest of your co-workers. This is the art of transitional demands that take the issues of the moment, the issues that are symptoms of capitalism in crisis, and use each particular issue as a bridge in consciousness to the need to overthrow capitalism and the need for revolutionary organization. If we can connect with that consciousness, if we can raise our political understanding, if we can understand the development of the class struggle, if we can intervene in these movements, help the workers to win, we can be absolutely confident of socialism in our lifetime. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. 
for international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at Marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.